Welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is Tyler Brondike, and today I'm joined with Dr. Dan Allender. He is one of the founders and former president of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. Thanks so much for tuning in to the conversation today with Dr. Dan Allender. If this is your first time, welcome. Extremely excited to have you on the show today and tuning into this conversation. If you're a longtime listener, thanks so much for your continued support and hope you find value in this in this talk as well. If you have not done so already, if you can leave a review on iTunes, leave a comment, be greatly appreciated uh, to help with the continued support and love for this podcast. Today with Dan, we open up and chat about the Allender Center, which is based on a simple assumption that trauma is part of living in a fallen world, and we all go through it. The idea of trauma and also of abuse um, play out in so many different ways uh, in our past, uh, but also in the present. And we look at um, how our unique stories uh, are important and allow us to empathize with others who are going through something now or have gone through something um, that we also have. Uh, but then also uh, looking at our unique stories and then how they relate to other stories uh, might not always be in sync. Um, so how can we live uh, and have a heart to hear when we might not be able to understand what someone else is going through? Uh, we look at how this relates to the importance of the body of Christ and what our mandate is uh, after, after knowing this. We break down into Dan's personal story, um, which I always love doing, hear about uh, what he's gone through, um, what he's experienced, what he's enjoyed, and uh, the pain and pleasure throughout. Uh, he breaks down his, um, his childhood, his faith conversion, and his continuous faith conversion, uh, as you'll see as well. We look a bit into identity um, and the importance of how people look into your attunement uh, in your childhood and also now. We finally get into uh, the topic of sex and why it's a good thing. All right, so that is a sneak peek into the conversation today, but I do not want to tell you any more because I want you to hear it for yourself. So let's tune on over to the conversation with Dr. Dan Allender. Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and today I'm joined with Dr. Dan Allender. He is a therapist, author, professor, and speaker currently based in Seattle, Washington. Dan is one of the founders of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and is now a professor of counseling psychology at the Seattle School. Um, so without further ado, uh, Dr. Dan Allender, thanks so much for hopping on today and chatting with me. No, Tyler. Good to be with you. Thank you. Um, so, would love to just hop right on, hop right in, um, and uh, just ask a bit more about the Allender Center, which I know is uh, definitely dear to you and something that um, obviously that you founded. Um, and there's, I think, one thing of the Allender Center that I really want to uh, address first. So, um, I, I know there's a theory that really serves as your backbone. Um, can you provide a bit of an introduction into that theory to start? Well, I, I think we make a very simple assumption that 
look, trauma is part of living in a fallen world. And there are not a few people who suffer uh, heartache and trauma. Everyone does. Uh, and trauma affects the brain, it affects the heart, affects our relationships, affects our relationship with God. And to the degree that we don't address trauma and its effects, to the degree that trauma will rule and in many ways shape the nature of your life. So we start with this assumption. You, you cannot go any further in someone else's life unless you've been willing to go that same topography as well. And if you have, then you have a lot to hear and a lot to say to those who are suffering significant heartache in this world. Mm, awesome. Well, thank you. And um, one of the things from that, I, I, um, I, obviously empathy is an important part of the, the process. And uh, But hearing what you're saying now is you have, you really have to go through this experience yourself to, I guess, maybe understand the same magnitude of what this trauma is for this person. How are you, um, I guess, how can we uh, get into that? I, I guess, you know, maybe if we haven't experienced the trauma that someone has faced firsthand, how are we able to maybe not understand, but still uh, kind of move, you know, turn the dial and, and, and be it and really just be a good listener and a, and a good person to, uh, to, to someone who's, you know, has gone through something that maybe we can't comprehend. Well, and it, you know, in some ways, trauma is any crisis that has left you in a position where you're helpless over a long period of time, and which has brought about a really a deep shift in something of your sense of who you are as a person. Mm. You know, and if, if somebody can claim living in a fallen world that they've not known crisis, helplessness, and a deep shift and something in their identity, what I want to say is what desert island have you been mm. living on? Uh, and even then, you're living in isolation, which is a form of trauma. So I, I would just say, you know, it, it, to, to begin with your own story opens the possibility analogically into engaging the stories of others. Now, that is not to say that as a white, older Caucasian male, that I can understand the experience of being a uh, 18-year-old uh, African-American uh, in, in mm. a portion of the world that I, I have not done even a travel through. So it, it, it starts with this, there's always an analogical connection, but there's always a humility to know that my suffering does not explain nor justify nor give me access to understanding yours. So I have to have the humility of being able to listen, to actually listen and let my worldview be shaped in some sense by the uh, agony and the heartache that you've endured. Mm. Awesome. Um, and I think when, when, you know, myself or maybe a typical or a stereotype is when we hear, you know, um, abuse, trauma, uh, it can be something of kind of looking at the extreme cases. Um, but after really looking at, you know, some of the work that you're doing at the Allender Center and what this, what trauma and abuse looks like, it can be, it doesn't have to be these, these, you know, these incredible high magnitude cases that, um, or, you know, at least that we perceive them to be, um, but rather these trauma and abuse, uh, even at maybe a different level, take form in our, our own relationships, whether it's through friendships, family or marriage. So 
um, it sounds like this is this really this theory and this idea is is practical for for everyone, not not just people who are maybe facing this you know incredible you know amount of trauma or abuse in their life. Is that is that accurate? Oh, I think it's very accurate. I mean, I, I think years, decades ago, um, my wife went through a miscarriage, and mm. during that season in the uh, early. 80s, late 70s, uh, a miscarriage was just viewed as, well, it's just too bad. Mm. You know, we've come culturally uh, to understand, no, it's, it's, it's a death. Uh, it is a loss. It isn't just fecal, fetal matter being, you know, swept away by the body. It's a being, a person, lost, dead. And to actually be aware that uh, my wife and I went through that several times and I had so little sense of what she was suffering. Now, decades later, when we're with friends who are going through that same experience, who are three or four decades younger, we're aware that there was a level of trauma we endured that they're now acknowledging that we didn't care for well during that season. So sometimes cultures open the door to seeing trauma at new levels in a new way that should have been, truly should have been addressed and named well before, uh, but are only being faced now. Uh, you know, the Me Too movement is a good example. A harassment in the workplace that would have been viewed at some point as, ah, it's not that big of a deal. You know, it happens everywhere. You know, to be able to say, oh my goodness, no, this is such a common phenomena for most women uh, and fewer men, but men. So as you begin to address the reality that cultures occlude, hide the nature of the trauma, and that there are seasons in which issues get brought to the surface that 20, 30, 40 years before might have been ignored, mm. but now are being named, that's not just a hypersensitivity, that's a greater awareness and therefore greater potential for the body of Christ to not only come along uh, from the element of care and compassion, but also uh, to address within the realm of justice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I and I was I was actually going to mention that as well. The the Me Too um, movement and really just the what it stands for has obviously gotten a lot of rise and um, and rightfully so. Do you? And it's interesting seeing that the the different highs and lows, kind of of what culture deems as rel is relative and really important, and um, and obviously I think racial tension is I think back on a on a on a on a high um, importance and relevance for you know for for being not only just a an issue but really a, you know a, a social justice issue and uh, just a human issue as well. Um, is there anything? I guess last kind of question on this is: Is there any other maybe cultural, culturally relevant um, uh, challenge that is maybe being swept under, under, under the rug right now that maybe we should be focusing a bit more before it's, you know, we're waiting 30, 40 years to, to, to make justice for this certain issue? Well, I, I do think racial tension, racial, uh, in many ways, trauma, uh, it, it is just being addressed, but where? you know, in the Caucasian white community, uh, it's been addressed or at least known and uh, acknowledged, you know, for African-Americans for literally centuries. Mm. So I, I think in some ways 
opening the possibility for the kind of not dialogue, but listening, the listening process. Uh, that's what I've found for the last several years that uh, even though I've been working in the area of trauma for almost 40 years, uh, the issue of racial trauma is just being opened on my behalf. I've worked with many um, Asian African-American with regard to the issues of sexual abuse, but understanding that abuse and the larger domain uh, of, of microaggressions uh, of white privilege, it's, um, it, it's a profound new issue. Now, if we take that into issues of immigration, uh, into what we have done to almost every immigrant group for the history of America, uh, opens the possibility to, to face the fact that America uh, has not been a welcoming community. Uh, and uh, as the believing community to say, what does it mean for us to welcome the stranger? Uh, and what have we done uh, to, in some ways, uh, disparage, to denigrate uh, every immigrant group from Irish after the potato famine uh, through uh, you know, the history of, of facing the fact that uh, the African-American people generally have a longer history in America than most Americans uh, do. Uh, and, you know, when I met with a number of African-American leaders saying, how, how many generations have you been in America? And I could name about three or four uh, before my immigrant past came to the light. Uh, and they would say, we have seven and eight generations before us. Uh, so learning what it means to be a welcoming body, caring and open to tending to the stranger, I think is, again, uh, a huge issue of uh, not only ameliorating trauma, but actually directly addressing how we end up in the body of Christ mm. traumatizing others. Mm. Absolutely. And um, and on yeah, and on that point, I um, speaking to, to some friends and uh, some folks recently about uh, you know, seeing this as a as a biblical, you know, looking at it from a, a biblical standpoint too, and um, immigration and and, and and race, and a lot of my friends who are you know, African American or maybe have seen the church or have seen the Bible as per, as portrayed as something that is for that was really you know Europeanized and has been become a white man's a white man's church, but obviously there's, you know, incredibly deep roots in Ethiopia and that the African church and which were long before it really ended up migrating and, and spreading. So I think it's crazy how, uh, I think several, several fronts, how culture has, um, how we've kind of cho cho chosen to perceive and to justify and to project, uh, certain ideas and to withstand and withhold on others and how these really kind of ripple and, continue to spew out to so many other people, um, that, that ultimately get affected by that, that don't even, that aren't, that aren't even aware. Yeah. Oh, well, and speaking of that, I often ask one of my classes, you know, uh, Augustine, um, uh, you know, what, what color was Augustine? Uh, what race? And it's inevitable. They think he's a European, uh, and to go, well, no, actually he's uh, North African. Uh, Augustine, probably one of the most influential theologians, for both the Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant Church, mm. uh, ha happens to be a person of color. So we have very, very, shall we say, uh, small vision 
uh, of the nature of our own place in the universe. Uh, and in that, uh, we don't have the empathetic base uh, to actually not so much feel, but listen long enough to feel the stories of others. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, feeling the stories of others, I think it's important to to understand your to understand your story and really where where your identity lies. So, um, I wanted to just ask, what would you recommend to people who, whether at home right now or on the road or um, wherever they are right now to how they can better just maybe some easy ways to better understand their identity um, and then create their story. I think this can be this really overwhelming or this big concept, but uh, if there's a few ways you can break that down, it would be, be great. Well, I think it's important to know what is it that God made you for? Uh, and, uh, you know, there are countless ways to address that question. I don't consider this the only means, mm. but I would argue that he made you for honor and for delight. Uh, and so you can begin to look at how your story got shaped by looking at how much attunement did you know in the context of your earliest learning classroom, which is your family, your mom, your dad, your brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, how much attunement, how well did people read your heart, your face, your very being? How well did they study you? Uh, And in that sense, a lack of attunement inevitably means a lack of delight. And so wherever there was a failure of delight, there will be harm. And harm shapes us, frankly, more deeply uh, than what could be called the goodness of life. Uh, And so were you uh, given a context where you were respected and honored with regard to the choices that you made so that there was containment, a kind of world where there are boundaries, but a free room to be able to roam. Uh, If the answer is no, you were pressured, you were demanded, it was expected, grades, you know, success, et cetera, were the premium that you lived on the basis for, then what I would say is you lack the very thing that you were most made for, delight and honor, uh, because there was an absence of attunement and, and in some ways, uh, uh, boundaried, honorable containment. So what I'm actually saying is attachment theory uh, that most people may have studied briefly in high school or college actually gives us a whole lot of perspective about what we were made for. And therefore, when harm comes, how have we then come to develop an identity, in fact, in spite of uh, these issues? So the fact that I I grew up in a crazy home uh, with a mother who was uh, mentally ill, borderline personality disorder, a father who rarely, literally spoke a full sentence, As an only child, uh, I'm having to, like any child, find my way to who I am, but with mirrors that are so, in many ways, so broken, that is my mom, or so absent, my father, well, where am I going to look to, in one sense, begin to gain a sense of who I am? Uh, And that will be peers, that will be culture, that will be media, that will be, in many ways, this amalgamation of such distortion and also striving that has little to do with, in one Mm. sense, receiving the goodness of God. It is a wonder any of us can say that we are who we are, uh, because we aren't. 
we are a defended mass of protoplasm attempting to find a false identity uh, through the eyes of others, rather than, in one sense, the confirmation of who we are meant to be in the context of who God wrote us to be. So all of our identities are to some degree both shattered and shadowed. And if we accept that, then we begin that process of saying, then who has he made me to be? What is unique about who I am called to be by virtue of what loves has he indeed planted uh, into my life? And the more we discover what we love, uh, we didn't make up our loves, he planted those. Mm -hmm. And so to understand what we are made for, we have to ask what brings us to tears, what brings us to anger, what do we love? And that labor, I frankly think, is one that we conduct literally until our deathbed. Wow. Wow. And also, and, and you shared a bit, a bit more about your story too. Um, looking back at, obviously, you're having a broken, broken, broken mother in, in terms of that relationship, and then your father being absent as well. And obviously, as a child, you spend a lot of time or maybe you don't spend a lot of time with your family, but either way, they, they do impact your life a lot um, based on kind of looking at the, the, the attachment theory of what you were uh, just speaking on. And um, want to dive a bit more into your personal story and um, looking at uh, a bit more into your story and your testimony and how you were able to, uh, not, not necessarily, not necessarily really when you you know, really got involved in your faith, but more so in the process of how you, you, you got to understand God and, and understand the, the life of Jesus and um, was the identity and really who, and the idea of who he created you to be the for the center of, of that decision to, 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 to continue to explore this or what kind of gripped, gripped you and allowed you to continue to enter and to seek and to learn more about Jesus? Well, uh, my family, uh, as crazy as it was, uh, also had the, I had the additional suffering of uh, significant events of sexual abuse with a scoutmaster, locker rooms with older boys, um, summer camp. And so I, I not only had a very distorted, in one sense, foundation, I also had the violence of abuse uh, penetrate you know, very deep parts of my life and my body and my mm. heart. So by the time I was 12, 13 years of age, I, I can, I was a violent, uh, uh, difficult uh, kid who got thrown out of school quite a bit, wasn't really uh, well received in my academic world. But to my advantage, I was also a football player. Uh, and in my little world, uh, football was king. Uh, and so because my violence and my athleticism combined to make me a formidable foe, uh, I was valued. So I was enabled uh, to get away with a lot of stuff because of that value to the community. But in the midst of all that, uh, through football, I met my best friend at age 13, a gentleman by the name of Tremper Longman III, who is literally one of the most significant Old Testament theologians uh, in the world right now. Uh, so Tremper and I are best friends at 13, uh, and he's witnessing to me, uh, told me that there was something called the Bible at age 14. Uh, I had never heard of the Bible, uh, no religious background, uh, and I thought it was an absolute massive bullshit. But nonetheless, 
I loved him and he intrigued me. And I think in some ways God wed us together uh, in a friendship that enabled me to hear the gospel. Uh, I mean, I knew scripture. I knew the Romans wrote by the time I was 14, 15 years of age. Uh, but we ended up going to college together because we bought albums together. I know that's an old day, but we used to buy, uh, uh, instead of paying $3 an album that was one fifty, and we yeah. got to the point of trying to divide our Doors albums. Uh, and we got into a really nasty interaction. And he just said, why don't you just go to college with me? Uh, and I had already begun to work uh, in what we'll call euphemistically uh, illicit pharmaceutical sales. And so um, having the cover uh, of a college, uh, I, so I went to college primarily to keep selling uh, my produce uh, and uh, didn't take college very seriously. But it was in that context uh, that the Cleveland Mafia began to take over a lot of our terrain. And um, we ended up hearing that we had contracts out on us. Uh, the idea of death being shot, uh, uh, something in me just didn't want to be in hell. And I, I, can't, I can't explain any better mm. than uh, I'm a middle-class drug dealer who doesn't want to go to hell. Mm. Uh, and mm. I was walking down a street knowing that I could be uh, off at any moment. And I just went, fine, fine. Uh, that was my conversion moment. That's how I invited Jesus into my heart. Like, fine, fine, it's yeah. all true. Uh, we went to church that night together for the first time, and I heard a sermon on Balaam's ass, which was really striking to me because I didn't know Christians used that kind of language. Uh, and uh, as the sermon progressed and uh, as I'm beginning to wonder, what, why, why don't people seem a little bit upset having this, this guy in a big black robe talk about Balaam's ass? Uh, and then he started talking about Balaam's ass talking. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is outlandish. what yeah. religion have I gotten myself into? Mm. Uh, and then a little bit later, he started talking about Balaam's donkey. And it was like, oh, oh, I get it. We're not talking about talking body parts. We're talking about a talking animal and I've hallucinated for years. So talking animals were a normal fare in life. So it was like. Oh, and it got to me. It just really got to me. Like, if he can use Balaam's ass to communicate his will and desire and warning, then I don't have to worry ever about being used of God. Uh, I mean, I'm somewhere along the line of Balaam's ass. So it's been an incredible both um, juxtaposition of the oddity of Scripture uh, and the confirmation that uh, anybody who wants to be part of the kingdom of God with whatever they've been given, uh, you know, you're in a good line uh, of people like me and other asses to be able to accomplish something of the will of God. Uh, and that that opened the possibility of um, a kind of it doesn't matter. Uh, I go to law school because I know a lot about attorneys. Uh, I go to seminary because my best friend's going you know, it's it's in many ways, this life is a playful lark, but understood in the context of the kingdom, he will use our wounds uh, and he will use our gifts all to accomplish making known something about his death and resurrection. 
And if that's the core, then I can say that I've fallen in and out of love with Jesus hundreds of times, uh, hundreds of times, come to know Jesus again, and then again, and again. And so in that sense, you know, my my conversion story uh, ha- happened yesterday. Mm. Uh, it also happened some 40 years ago. Uh, and I, I hope in that sense, if someone were to say, but if you died two years ago, would you be with Jesus? And the answer is, oh, yeah. But there are new ways of knowing him that are so sweet and so life-changing that the presumption that we who are in leadership already have arrived at some core level of knowledge that gives us, um, you know, both proximity, proximity and also uh, uh, the ease of use of gifts. I, I just want to stand against that and to say, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to come to know Jesus today uh, and as well tomorrow. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I was speaking with a with a pastor I know, and he, you know, I I, I said, uh, you know, what does it mean to you know for you to be a Christian? And he said, you know what, I I don't really know. There's there's some days when I'm uh, when I'm you know fully on board with with or you know my my love for Jesus is incredibly high, and there's other days when I, I, I I'm not there, I'm not present, and I, I don't even know if I can call myself one, right? But at yeah. the end of the day, it's just, it, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's, I think it's this constant this this circle where you can kind of come, you know, go from A to B, and if, if B doesn't work, then you kind of come back to A, and then you go back to, and then it just kind of continues to like refine, and the process continues to go, and but it continues to move regardless. Um, I go back to that category. And if the school that I teach at has a motto, which it doesn't, it, it is, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. With the operative word there, help. You know, I, I'm a believer. I'm yeah. an unbeliever. Uh, but it's not I'm an unbeliever because I, I'm willing to sit halfway on the fence. It's far more there's too much unbelief in my own life. and And I'm calling for help. To, to know rescue at the level to be able to proclaim the good news. So as we look at you know at the, the categories of what, what we were referring to earlier, sexual abuse, racial abuse, um, the issue of immigration and you know all those issues, I believe, I unbelieve, help. If we have a fundamental stance of, of, of that cry for help, then I think what we have is not only the stance of a learner, but somebody with enough humility to actually listen to what others have to offer with regard to their own story that we do not have that we need to hear. Mm. I, I like that, that the last part, with regard to your own story too, um, looking looking inwardly and, and, and self-reflecting onto, your own, onto yourself. I think sometimes we think of listening as listening to others, but also listening to yourself. Wow. Oh, I, there's nobody who knows my own story less than I do. Fascinating. Very, 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 yeah, that's awesome. Um, obviously you've, you know, writ- written a handful of books and I want to kind of transition into maybe a few talking points that you've, uh, questions that you address and I'm sure have kind of, uh, kind of gone back and forth with, you know, just everything else that you're, that you've been doing. Um, so looking at the idea of pain again, uh, whether through the loss of a family member sexual abuse, you know, alcohol, drug addiction, and among many more examples, just kind of looking at the ones that, um, that I think scream out the most to me. Um, I, I want to know, how have you seen people respond 
after the fact, whether it's, you know, immediately days after or years later. Um, and then at, at what point do, you know, people come to terms with the, this long lasting pain and then how can, when have you seen people move forward? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think we're a culture of cheap aphorisms, uh, just turn lemons into lemonades. Like I'd like to slay the person who came up with that ridiculous, but very memorable statement. Um, you know, what, what we often do is we dissociate, we, we cut off the horror cut off the experience of loss, and then by minimizing, defending, and in many ways self-protecting, uh, we end up rising above it, but never actually dealing with the effects uh, of it in our body, therefore in the way that we actually relate to other people. So the absence, for example, of tears, uh, the inability to truly weep on your own behalf, but on behalf of others. It's not a sign of maturity or masculinity. It's a sign of something desert-like and dead in you. And so the question of why do you not join the tears of God for the world? How can you watch the news, like a 30-minute display of human suffering and not weep? And so a, a good friend of mine challenged me and said, are you able to watch the news and not weep? And it's like, yeah, all the time. And I said, then why are you watching the news? Uh, well, for information. And that's choosing to take you where? Uh, I, nowhere. Uh, so I, it, hmm. it's at least a beginning point to say, until our heart is tenderized and also enraged, both are true. We need tears, grief. We need anger movement in order for our lives to change. And people who have grief without anger tend to be very sentimental and self-absorbed. People who have a lot of anger without grief end to be advocates, but end up in their own self-righteous totalitarian systems, where in many ways they perpetrate and perpetuate the same levels of harm that they're also working against. So it, it, there has to be both grief and anger with regard to our story, but as well with regard to the stories of suffering in this world, when those are combined, I think you have in many ways, the movement of the cross and the resurrection. The cross ought to move our heart to deeper grief, the resurrection to a kind of anger that says, hell no, hell no on my watch. Am I going to let this social, familial, personal injustice continue unabated. And heaven, yes, heaven, yes, mm -hmm. I have the gifting to be able to create in my world uh, uh, something of a taste of resurrection beauty. When you have that, I think people change. Simply said, people change as they enter their own and other people's story with a growing sense of grief and honor, grief and anger that allows them to understand the work of the cross and the work of the resurrection uh, to indeed transform the human heart. Absolutely. So through through at, at the point when we're able to get to grief and anger, but looking, I think anger in a maybe in a different light than we uh, than we maybe typically associate the word anger. Um, right. We we normally frankly think of it as road rage or something petty or just yeah. making yeah. somebody pay versus. Oh my gosh, you're a warrior, male or female. You're a warrior, uh, and your gifts are meant to be a form of engagement of spiritual warfare. 
Uh, and so whether you are a poet, whether you are a songwriter, whether you are a wealthy business person, it, it doesn't matter. Your gifting is meant to be a form of hell no. So what are you uniquely called to say hell no to? Uh, my story is written, I'm meant to say hell no to all violations of human dignity, particularly gender and the violence of sexuality. That's a hell no. But heaven yes is, I get to talk and play in the realm of, of what redeemed sexuality, what redeemed engagement with one another as erotic beings. Erotic not meaning sexual, erotic meaning people who enjoy, have pleasure in the sensual capacity to give and receive love to one another. So in that sense, uh, the fact that I'm a professor, eh, it's a job, not my calling. Uh, and I might have that call that job until uh, the day I die. But my calling is to engage the human heart in a way that the gospel begins to take hold of our own rooted harm, but also to see how those wounds get transformed into many good stories to reveal something of death and resurrection. That's a ball. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't imagine a life that's wealthier than a life playing out the gospel. Wonderful. Um, and, and then next question, I want to know, how does our story impact who we will become? Well, you know, in some ways, uh, I, I would love to be a politician one day. Uh, I, I won't be. Uh, you know, I've been a president of a seminary for nine years. That's about as much politics as I can take for a lifetime. But, you know, the idea of, uh, like, all of a sudden, uh, I'm, I'm uh, given the opportunity to be a, a congressman from the grand state of Washington. Mm. Now, I'd love to be asked, well, did you inhale? Oh, a lot. Yes. Uh, and, and, and here, am I a conservative? Yes. Am I a liberal? Yes. Am I from the right? Yes. Am I from the left? Yes. Uh, you know, in many ways, the politics of the kingdom cannot be in any way uh, assigned to either the democratic, liberal, libertarian, or independent parties. Uh, anyone who's thinking biblically cannot be labeled uh, easily uh, by any system. So in many ways, my task uh, is given that I'm 66 years of age, I don't think I have a political career ahead of me. Nonetheless, I get to play in the ground uh, that my trajectory of life has taken me. Now, that trajectory is not, uh, you know, a, a jail, but it's an open ground to say, who knows what's ahead five or 10 years from now? I might be in politics, not likely, but be faithful to the small. Let God bring you the large. And the more faithful you are to the small things you do to daily say, hell no and heaven yes. Those things build up both reputation and calling and opportunity that can be radically different uh, in a week, a month, or a year, especially if you're young, uh, especially if you've got 20, 40, 50 years likely ahead of you. Uh, what research indicates is that someone your age will likely have seven careers in a lifetime. That's staggering. Uh, that doesn't mean you're going to be flighty. It means that there will be an evolution of calling as long as you know what the unique identity you bring to this process. Wow. Yeah, and I, I mentioned 
uh, evolution of calling rather than a you know I, I think a, an end or a stop or a change, but it's con continuing to to develop even though your your jobs are going to change during during you know during this. And I think sometimes we associate um, a job with our with our calling, um, but I like how you've distinguished have many jobs, many careers within one calling. It's fascinating. Um, the last few questions I uh, want to know uh, why is why is sex a good thing? And what can we learn from our sexual desires? Well, it, let's say sex centrally is all about worship, uh, both idolatry, you know, false worship, but also about true worship. I mean, the Bible begins about sex, it ends about sex. Uh, and if sex is not something you're intrigued in and with, then something has been lost for the sake of the gospel. And for most, uh, you know, sex is about saying no. Sex is about being aware of impulses and desires that seem contrary to God. And I, I'm all for prohibition. I'm all for parameters, boundaries. But let's just say sex is not about no, it's about yes. Uh, it's about the glory of God. So in that sense, worship is about awe and gratitude. Uh, and sexuality must bring us a sense of <clears throat> Uh, wow, wow, and thank you. Uh, and without that, there will always be a sense of exploitation and misuse. So yeah, we live in a pornographic age. We live in a sexually mad age. Uh, Tremper and I wrote a book uh, called God Loves Sex. And in it, what we're trying to address is a simple point. You got a whole book of the Bible that's not uh, <clears throat> a metaphor of Christ in the church. It's erotic sexual poetry uh, about the joy uh, of eroticism, the joy of sexuality. So when we look at Song of Songs, we, we have to begin uh, with the assumption, God loves our bodies, <clears throat> our sexuality, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> about our, 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 our very sensuality. If that's the case, then it becomes clearer, evil hates sex and wants to ruin it. And so, in many ways, indulgence uh, is a way of living out violence against yourself and others. Uh, so there is attunement and containment that needs to be offered, but every sexual sin bears something in it uh, that reveals the design and desire of God. I know that's a crazy sentence for most people, but the bottom line is we can't sin without revealing the reality of what we were actually written for. So when G.K. Chesterton said, every man who's knocking at the door of a brothel is looking for God. I, I, no sentence about sexuality could be truer. If we can actually see within our own sexual struggles that the deeper, deeper desires for what it is that God made us for, not just with sex, but made us for with him, then indeed what we begin to have is a transformation of our understanding. Rather than being merely a culture of prohibition and no, we become a culture of curiosity that's saying, what is written within my body that needs to be explored to understand what it means to worship even with more joy? Mm. <clears throat> Wonderful. Um, yeah, I, th I think we're, we're a culture too where we like to uh, express and act kind of from the, from the head up, right? But and we for, we forget to include our our entire body and 
uh, yes. really our heart in that. And I, I think that's a point you were mentioning is um, having that deeper understanding of where it comes from and the the purpose and the and then approaching it with with uh, with awe and gratitude. Um, I think is really it's awesome. Um, the uh, just the, the last uh, question I wanted to ask you is. Um, What's is if there's one thing that uh, is on your heart and you'd like to share, um, and then also uh, where we can find you and some of the work that God's been doing in you. Well, I I would go back to the one thing that uh, Jesus has been inviting me to engage, and that is um, the the racial trauma uh, is a phenomena that I'll just say I, I I won't generalize to my work my field, but to me. Uh, it is a realm that for 40 some years of professional work, uh, I've allowed my own white privilege to keep me from having to address. Uh, and a book like Just Mercy uh, by Stevenson. Uh, I mean, there's so many phenomenal books open today. Uh, you know, white Rage, another book, uh, White Awake. I mean, there are, I, I'm so grateful that the Caucasian community is more aware uh, of the reality of our blindness uh, than we've ever been, at least in my lifetime. Uh, and so opening the door to doing not so much help, I, my, my goal is not to help those in the African-American community or Asian community or Hispanic community, but to be one who at least has a heart to hear I would say that is one of our great commitments uh, in the Allender Center and certainly one of the great commitments I believe every believer uh, is meant to have. Uh, and I'm available uh, on the Allender Center, theallendercenter.org, uh, but also through theseattleschool.edu. Uh, those are fine ways to find our work. Awesome. Well, um, Dr. Dan Allender, thanks so much for being on the sure. show today uh, and appreciate your time. Tyler, my enjoyment. Thank you.